Hello everyone, this is Greg McEwen. I'm your host, and I am on this journey with you to learn, to understand, so that we can live a life that really matters and make a contribution. How much do you waste time, money, energy, even your life, solving the wrong problems? That's a question posed by my guest today. This is part one of a two-part interview with Thomas Widell Widelspork. I became aware of his work after reading an article that he wrote in Harvard Business Review. By the end of this episode, you will be able to reframe problems in order to reveal unexpected solutions. Let's get to it. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. To better detect a mission and life that really matters, sign up for the One Minute Wednesday newsletter. It's a free resource. It's delivered every Wednesday. It takes just a minute to read, and it will help to bridge this learning and help to make it actionable in your life. Go to gregmcewan.com, sign up for free, and you get the first chapter of Effortless for free. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. In your work on solving the right problems, you use a slow elevator metaphor. Can you describe what that is and why it matters? It's really the best way of explaining the core idea in my book. And it goes like this. You imagine that you own an office building and that people, the tenants in the building, they are complaining about the elevator that is too slow. And some of them may have threatened to break their lease if you don't kind of fix this problem now. 
what most people do in that situation is just to jump straight into action and like, okay, how do we solve this? How do we make the elevator faster? Can we put in a better motor or can we maybe buy a new elevator, find the money for that? There are people then who kind of are better at problem solving and they go in and say, wait, we got to ask questions first, which is a good first step. And they say, wait, why is the elevator slow? And they're trying to think about that. And you know, they examine the problem, understand it in detail. And even those people may miss the most important thing which is that the first problem that's put in front of you is not necessarily the right problem to look at. So if you ask a clever landlord, you know, they might suggest a very different solution, namely putting up mirrors in the hallway next to the elevator, because they know what happens is when people see a mirror, they fall in love with their own reflection, they forget time and so on. And that, I think, that idea really encapsulates this central difference between, you know, just asking questions or analyzing a problem and then reframing it which is the key concept, like going in and asking, wait, is this actually the problem we should be paying attention to? Or is there a very different way of looking at the problem? Namely, it's not that the elevator is slow, it's that people hate waiting. And Mirror is a great solution for that. So that, that's kind of in a nutshell, the way to explain what reframing is about, how it's different from analysis, and as you can probably sense, why it is so important. Well, why don't you give us a little more about that? Why is this so important beyond the elevator explanation? Why, for somebody listening to this right now, should they prioritize this ability? Well, they shouldn't if they don't have any problems in their lives, I would say. It's been striking to me working with problems for many years that we have problems in our lives and they have been around for a while. And we keep just kind of hammering our head into the wall, trying to solve it the same way. Now, if our listeners may feel that describes their problems or some of them, that's very normal. Like I have, I've met people who for 10 years have kind of held on to some kind of understanding of a problem. And then once in a while, once you get a new perspective on it, once you start questioning what the problem actually is, you can find new or better solutions. Like it's telling in the elevator example, it might actually solve the problem if you go in and buy a new elevator, but that's a really expensive solution. And most of our problems have more than one solution. And one of those other solutions you can find is probably more creative, cheaper, better, smarter, easier way to do it. So I, I just see this all the time. People in all walks of life, from professional to in their personal lives and so on, they just kind of fall into that trap of quickly saying, oh, this is the problem. And they hold on to that understanding of the problem forever. Half the time, it's not the right problem to solve at all. The other half of the time, it's kind of maybe it's the right problem, but there's a smarter way of going about this that they're completely missing. That's maybe in the short version of it, I'd say. What kind of problems can people listening to this use this approach to address? Is it any kind of problem? Like, Give me something tangible that someone is likely to experience well, I mean, so as preparation for this call, I listened to some of your other podcasts and one with Jeremy Ockley talking about every mm -hmm. problem is an idea problem. Right. And one of, the ones, one of the ones that interested me was kind of, uh, when I looked at my own life, I had this thing of my laptop cord where that I kind of, whenever I had to move, I plucked it out and I went somewhere else and I took it with me and so on. And it actually took me years to realize that you can buy two laptop cords and right. you can leave one at home and you can have one in your bag. So, so that's a very minuscule problem, but an interesting example for me of one of those cases where we just have small problems. We're just kind of accepting that they're there and we don't necessarily have to. 
Let me give you another example of one of my one of my favorite stories from it, which is from Robert Sternberg, who you probably know is one of the big creativity researchers. He has this wonderful story of a uh, leader who was really sick of his boss. Like he just hate, hated working for this guy. And he finally goes to a headhunter, an executive search firm, and he says, hey, can you, can you help me find a new job? And the headhunter says, sure, there's a ton of demand in our industry at the moment. This is going to be pretty easy. Now, luckily, the man goes back and talks to, talks to his wife about it, too. And the wife is kind of a, she's trained in kind of the whole reframing thing. And together, they come up with a different way of thinking about it, which is basically the next day, the man goes back to the headhunter. He says, you know what? Here is the CV of my boss. Can you find a new job for him? <laughs> and the story, according to Sternberg, the story literally, this is a true story, he says, it ends with the boss unknowingly getting a, an offer from, from the headhunter he accepts. And the, the protagonist of our story ends up being promoted into the his old boss's job, staying in the company he loves, but away from the boss he hates. So... Just an example there. No, it's a terrific example. I love that idea. And I am completely sold on the principle that you are advocating, that we shouldn't just be solving the surface problems or the way that those problems first appear to us, mm. but that we need to dig down so that we can understand what the real issue is so that we can address the right thing because nothing matters if you're addressing the wrong problem. Yeah. So... I want to keep asking that same thought process here. When I hear the term problem solving or problem finding or problem reframing, it still seems conceptual, but it's so relevant to so many of the things that are going on in our lives. What other practical illustrations can you give us of the kinds of problems this would be relevant for? So this applies to all sorts of problems, but I mean, what I, what I love to start with is actually problems from the personal domain because they are very accessible and it's somehow easier to start using this even at work if you first kind of grapple with it with your own relationships. Here's an example. My good friend, Tanya Luna, she's an author as well. She's married to Brian and her and Brian tended to have a good deal of fights in their relationships. They're a good marriage, but kind of on occasion, they get, in, got, get into these like really bitter fights about, I don't know, the budget or whatever. Th their initial thinking was fascinating to me because they, of course, went Freudian. They said like, well, we have different childhoods. We are from different part, like, parts of the world and different values and blah, blah, blah. And none of that helped at all. Like they had long discussions around it, didn't move the needle. At one point, Tanya, starts looking for what I call bright spots. It's a term Chip and Dan Heath has also kind of thrown about, yeah. meaning positive exceptions. Like, when did you ever discuss the budget and it was not a problem? Like, you did not get into this bit of fight. And Tanya realized, wait, we actually had a discussion recently over breakfast where we spoke about this issue and it was fine. It did not devolve into a bit of fight. And just looking at that made her realize that there's a very important different way to frame the problem, not as a fraudulent thing, not as a deep values thing, but just saying most of our fights tend to happen after 10 o'clock at night because we, we kind of, we're tired, we're hungry and so on. And so she instigated basically this rule, the sacred 10 o'clock rule, which is in their marriage, if anybody brings up something contentious and it's after 10 o'clock, the other person just says like, ah, oh, 10 o'clock. And that means we're going to get a little bit up earlier the next day and have a discussion about them. So super simple application of how 
you know, in, in a relationship, for instance, you can struggle with some issue for a long, long time until you spend a little bit of time thinking about, wait, what is the problem here? And is there a different way of looking at it? I love these examples. Do you have another one? <laughs> I don't know how relevant this is, is to all of your readers, but I think it applies to maybe a lot of types of work. But when I was writing my book, uh, this is a personal example. I initially thought, well, I have to gather all of the knowledge around problem reframing from all the different disciplines and kind of put it all in there. And at some point during this process, I realized I'm trying to look smart by doing this. And I'm kind of following this idea of what a book should be. And I, what struck me was, and this kind of is one of the areas in which I think your work impacts as well around essentialism. What is the most important thing here? It is to give people something easy and tangible to dig into, which means I took out almost everything that I had stuffed in there and tried to make it like as bare bones as possible in order to make it something people could remember and they could use. So I think even that shift of starting to notice how you're approaching something you're trying to do, what are your goals? And are they necessarily the best goals to focus on? Are you better off focusing on the goals of the reader or whoever you're trying to talk to? That's just one I'd say from my personal life. No, it's just terrific. What is the moment in somebody's life where they would know that they're thinking about their problems in the wrong way? There is no one moment. There is though this thing of kind of when you have tried solving it before and haven't made headway on it. Now, the first time that happens, okay, well, maybe you just need to try again a little bit smarter or a little bit harder or whatever. But once you've started noticing it several times that you're not making headway on this basic thing, I think that is that should be a trigger for you to step into a different space where you don't try to solve it. You actually try to even just write down the problem and try to question your understanding of it. So literally any time you're facing a repeated problem of any kind, that would be a trigger. Yes, one that you don't feel you're making progress on. I'm not saying necessarily you should use this all the time. I mean, there is such a thing as over applying it. If you have, you know, if you have friends who are coaches, they might sometimes fall into that trap of like, you go up to them and you say, hey, can you tell me what the coffee is? And they go, <laughs> what's your real problem? <laughs> you know? One important thing about this way of thinking is, I think of it as something that's a little bit scale free. One of the big mistakes I think we made is to think that whenever you have to think about a problem, you have to go deep, deep into it. Like you have to go two weeks to the mountains, think deep thoughts and so on. That just means you're never gonna use it. The way I use it really depends on the moment. So sometimes there's room for going in more depth. Other times it's literally, you're standing in a hallway, there's a friend of yours or a colleague kind of asking you a question and, and instead of responding with a solution, you might ask one or two questions back. So I think this can be a very nimble practice. And in the back of my head, I always have this like, when people come to me with a problem, I always have this kind of like, how are they framing this problem? Is that the right problem to solve? or the right problem to pay attention to. This is important what you're saying, because I think there is a false dichotomy where people think on the one hand, I can either be fast and surface, or on the other hand, I can be slow, thorough and right. Yeah. And if you think you only have those two options and you're already feeling time pressure and stress and too many things going on in your life, then you're going to keep pressing the fast button well, we just have to react to this. Yeah. Whereas what you just said is 
there is this third alternative. There's a way to rapidly get to the right problem. Go ahead, your thoughts. Spot on. I feel like that false dichotomy has caused a lot, caused a lot of suffering, yeah, if you will. I think, weirdly enough, it's kind of been propagated by a saying that I both love and hate, and I'm sure you know it. Is that like it's attributed to Einstein? He never said it, but this thing about if I had an hour, I would spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. That I love it because it gets people to pay attention to the problem. And I hate it because it actually prescribes that you should spend most of the time just thinking deep thoughts about the problem. That's wrong. The way I teach people to use this is you might have a problem and you spend literally five minutes on trying to question it, trying to kind of ask if that's the right problem. Then you swing into action, you do stuff, you talk to people, you prototype and so on. And then next Monday, you take another step back and say, wait a second, given what we've been doing this week, are we sure we still understand the problem correctly? Do we actually need to talk to maybe the customer we're dealing with to see if they have a different need than we think it is or whatever? So it is much more like quick practice and iterated over time. Don't think you have to have the perfect diagnosis before you move forward. See it as something you do in conjunction with moving forward and trying to. Yeah, I think that's such a, a, an important illustration of this. So we've identified when somebody should be triggering this thought process, right? If you're irritated by the same problem multiple times, you, you shift into this other gear, this reframing the problem. And mm. I wonder if you could really just define what you mean when you say reframe the problem. It is to step away from your first understanding of the problem. Now, I refer back to the elevator here again. If you just analyze a problem, you ask, why is the elevator slow? And what you'll notice is that that kind of makes you dig deeper into the first framing of the problem, that the elevator is slow. Reframing is to say, wait, what if the speed of the elevator is not the issue we should be looking at? Could this be, you know, this waiting time? Could it be that they all arrive at the same time in the elevator? Could it be that it's a ploy to renegotiate the rent? Whatever. So that crucial step of questioning your first understanding of the problem instead of just trying to dissect it immediately and kind of understand all the details of it. I sometimes refer to problems as swimming pools. There's a swimming pool right in front of you. It is so tempting to just jump into it and splash around. Instead of doing that as your first thing, kind of try to step back and look around, see if there are other ways of other swimming pools nearby, if you will, other ways of kind of thinking about the problem before you go. We could describe this, I think, in a four-word question, which is, what's the real issue? Is that we right? Could, although I don't want to, I want to nuance that because there's, I love that question, again, because it drives people to, to question the, their understanding of the problem. The one thing I would probably change is the word real, because here's the thing about the way we think about problems. We think there's one real problem. Like you will notice this in the language people use. They say like, what's the root cause? Implying that everything else is just symptoms. There's one real problem. What I think is super important is most of the problems we face have multiple solutions and they have, there are multiple causes for why they happen, which is great news. You might find a real problem to solve, but that doesn't mean that there's not a better problem out there to solve as well. You could fix the elevator by making it faster by, you know, buying a new elevator, or you could fix the weight, which is a lot cheaper. So improve the question for me. What's the golden question 
to start with, if you want to reframe the problem, try to get to what the underlying issues are, what's the right question? The sentence I teach people to use is just to say, wait, are we solving the right problem? And the um, wait part is kind of to make them pause a little bit. And then that questioning, like make asking them to question the problem. Are we solving the right problem? Or sometimes what you need to do is just to start with, wait, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Because sometimes people will come to you asking for a solution, not necessarily being clear about what they're trying to achieve with that solution. My experience with this is that people almost never say what they really mean the first time around. Correct. Is that your experience? I uh, surveyed a good deal of the people I've kind of taught this to. And I ask about their experience with other people. What one thing, you know, many people go like, well, I never do this with my problems, but all the people in like, you know, my employees do it all the time or so. I ask them when they were facing somebody coming to them with a problem, I asked how often is that the right problem to solve? They basically said one out of five times, it is the right problem. Two out of five times, it is somewhat in the direction of the right problem, but there's something you need to kind of tweak or change about it to get it right. And two out of five times, it is completely the wrong question to focus on. If those numbers hold up, that's a massive amount of problems we tend to get wrong. Well, my mind is going in two directions. On the one hand, I want for you to illustrate other examples, the range of tangible examples that this methodology can address. And on the other hand, I want to go to what are the tangible skills yeah. to be able to do this? What are those precise phrases? What are the skills beyond those phrases? And I still think I want more of the first because for example, you have for your book, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, you know, his the statement he makes about your book, What's Your Problem? If you want the superpower of solving better problems, read this book. And that just reminds me that the problem of solving the wrong problem is a massive problem. It's not just for the slight irritations in our lives. It's like we could spend masses of resources. I've worked with organizations that have spent thousands of hours and millions of dollars working on something that ended up not even being the issue, you know, mm -hmm. or creating a product that didn't actually meet a real need or a marriage where somebody has been married for 10 years, 15 years, and they've put in tons of effort. Like you couldn't mm -hmm. knock people's effort, but at the end they're on the edge now of getting a divorce because they are not meeting each other's needs in that relationship. And I just see the problem everywhere. And it's like, I don't want us to take that for granted in this conversation. It's striking to me. I mentioned I like to start with personal problems because those are kind of easy to access. Yeah. It's striking to me how this applies to some of the biggest problems we're dealing with as well. And I think, for example, with Eric Smith, he's, as you may know, involved in some of the work around national security and so on. One of the big problems, at, if you're looking at the Department of Defense, they work with a lot of companies, like, like non-governmental organizations and so on. And what they often do in their process is, of course, to put out a request for a proposal. Or like they say, hey, we need this thing. And then the, the different companies come back and say, hey, here's what we can do. One of the problems in that process is that sometimes whoever's creating that request 
over-specify the problem. So they go in and say, here's exactly what we need. They're describing a solution. Right. In reality, often you can find much better approaches that doesn't involve that specific solution. Once it's in the proposal, because of the rules of procurement and the way we run these things, you actually have to find that. Like you, you can inadvertently lock an entire industry into one specific solution that's not the best one because you crafted the proposal that way or the request for proposal. So this is a big issue. This affects us massively. And a super simple way of thinking about this is if let's say there's a region in which, hey, we need more fresh water supplies here. Do you go in and say, hey, we need the most cost-effective way to drill wells in this area? That's specifying a solution versus just stating what you want, which is we need to supply fresh water to this area. Like that other one opens the door for creative solutions that doesn't necessarily involve digging a well. But if you lock yourself into describing we want wells, you have a problem. What was one thing that stood out to you in today's episode? Was it the slow elevator problem or something else? What is one thing that you can do immediately to put this into action? And who's one person that you can share this episode with so that you can help them and they can help you to live a life that really matters? Thank you, really thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.